0: everyone welcome to flywheel pod your number one source for everything frax DeFi, and everything in between if you want to know what's going on in the world on chain you've come to the right place this is DeFi dave here with capital k and we're here to help you harness the power of the flywheel and this time around we were with a flywheel og our Fraxmos from the beginning someone who has been co- who has covered frax from the early days and now is working on something special himself, uh the Justin Brahm. Um this was a really special episode, I think, because we went in deep on so many topics, whether we were talking about the VE system in general, its merits, it's kind of like, you know, you know, what else critiques of it as well. We went deep into Astaria, his new project, we went deep into a bunch of different things, um, which I think you know, our OG listeners will enjoy. So Kit, what are your initial thoughts on this one?
1: Yeah, I mean, Justin is my boy. I, I met Justin way back in 2019. And he was just a general good dude. And, and we found ourselves kind of like both in the crypto space, just kind of crushing it. And I'm so happy to have him on. He is a genuine guy. And not only that, he's so humble. Yeah, like he's he is a bona fide builder and he just kind of just shrugs it off. So I'm very happy to have him on. Like, my favorite pods are when we have builders on and we just talk to them about their product and their project and their perspective yeah. in the DeFi world or in crypto and in general.
0: Yeah. And Justin has been on a journey. I remember first meeting him in 2021 when he was first coming out with the Frax videos and him working at Brink, which was obviously a very similar product to mm-hmm. Gelato, which I was at at the time. And yeah. so, you know, we knew of each other there. And then just like seeing his journey onto, Ando, and then you know now to the CEO of Astaria, like definitely inspiring, definitely well earned by Justin. Um, and I'm um, you know talking, you know we went deep into Astaria, and he really explained well how it worked and made it di- how it's different and unique compared to other NFT lending protocols. And really like the opportunity there, I think is massive, especially like if they can pull it off right.
1: Yeah, look, it's super innovative. I love that they're experimenting and we need more of this, right? This is, you know, bear markets to build things. And I just, you love to see it. You love to see
0: it. You love, you love to see it. And then if you love what you're seeing, don't forget to like comment, subscribe, hit that bell button on YouTube. Uh, keep up with us on Twitter at flywheel pod, join our telegram at flywheel pod. You can follow me on Twitter at defi day 22.
1: You can follow me at zero X capital underscore K. And let's get the flywheel spinning.
0: Do you hold ETH but don't know what to do with it? Want to earn those juicy liquid staking derivative yields but don't know where to start? Well, Frax ETH is there for you. Frax ETH is Frax's native LSD solution, allowing you to earn boosted yields in multiple ways on your ETH. If you want to get started, go to app.frax.finance and turn your ETH into FraxETH today. This week, we have on an OG Frax list. He's been with it since the beginning. Uh, his videos back in 2021 first brought a lot of attention to Frax and DeFi during that cycle as a whole. Now he is the CEO of Astaria. We have the Justin Brahman. Justin, how are you doing today? I'm doing
2: great. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. It's it's good to talk to you guys. Uh, for some context, Dave and I have bumped into each other at various different crypto events and capital K, who I know as Kit, we went to business school together. Uh, We actually just had lunch on Monday. So we're good friends. We (laughs) hang out a lot in LA here. So it's great to come full circle and and be on the podcast with you guys.
0: Yeah. And honestly, it's an honor to have you on because in a way you predated our show in terms of like covering fracks on a deeper level and helping people understand what fracks is. Because as you know, it's not easy at the beginning. It's a lot to delve into. And Honestly, it's gotten a lot more complex from there, but uh, I want to like bring it back to the beginning, like back when you first started creating YouTube videos, like Frax was your first one. So like what made Frax like your primary um, center of attention for videos?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, so before I discovered Frax, so I think Frax came out in November, December 2019. I found Frax uh, in January uh, yeah. of 2020.
0: Yeah, it's December um, twenty twenty, so it's probably twenty twenty
2: one. Gotcha. Okay, yeah, you're right. right. And so right before that, there were all these um, like Ponzi stable coins that were so fun. And at the time, I was new, so I I didn't know they were all like you know sort of scams or pump and dumps. But I was just um, having a great time. Like if you guys remember, based and like basis cash and all of these crazy little projects, they were a great time. They were fun. Um, looking back, we, it was just playing at the casino. Um, but just market, lear-
0: <laughs> just market <it> by, <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. But, uh, I, you know, learned a ton and, um, f- when I discovered FRAX after that, it sort of made sense to me as a much more sustainable model than this like fully algorithmic coin that in, in my view wouldn't work. And, um, so I was like, you know, looking at what to do on chain and, you know, figuring out where to farm, et cetera. And I just built myself, you know, my own spreadsheet, I was like looking at this, the FRAX. ETH pool, which is a stablecoin ETH pool, and locking that for, I think at the time, three or four years, and then like estimating my returns. And I sort of modeled out what the returns looked like. And I also knew my downside was sort of capped because like the FRAC stablecoin at the time was, I think, 90 to 95% backed. It's probably like 90% backed now. So I was thinking, well, you know, the worst case is I get a 10% haircut here, but it's earning at the time, I think, a 300% APR for being locked. So I might as well, might as well do this. It worked out really well, um, and I, I was pretty like confident and proud of the spreadsheet I'd built to to sort of like model this out. So I was just figured, well, I was a film major in undergrad uh, before I got into you know business and crypto and more of that. I always like had a passion for for creating content, so I just decided to make a video. And the Frax community has always been a welcoming community. I was pretty active in the Telegram. So when I shared the video, Sam was very supportive of it, um, and the community as a whole was too. So it sort of catalyzed. Um, my YouTube channel, which which I'm very grateful for.
0: Yeah, I remember like at the beginning, it definitely uh, caused a bit of excitement because I, like I said, I think you were like the first one to like really shine a light on Frax more than anyone. And I feel like in a way, like you got, we grew together, like Frax grew as your channel grew. And then yeah. your video started getting like tens of thousands of views, but definitely like not only were you active in the Telegram community, community, but you're also active in governance firms as well. Like you weren't just around like covering videos. Like, no, you're like an active member of the community. So what was your experience like, you know, being in the FRAX community and, you know, talking to people day in and day out?
2: It was, it was great. I think a lot of that comes from, from Sam. I mean, I would consider Sam to be a friend now. I've met him a couple of times here in LA. Uh, I mean, you guys know him pretty well. He's just, you know, in real life, just a good person, a nice person. I think that. Translates pretty well to the community. I think it's you know pretty top down. So yeah, working with the community has been great. They've been very receptive of governance proposals. I think I've done a few. um Partnered with some other folks to do a few as well. Um, and it, it, I think it's different from what I've seen in other governance forms. Like I don't want to pick on any one project, but like if you look at the sushi swap community, like if you go there to propose something, your their first reaction is to sort of attack you. And I think <laughs> with Frax, I like really respect that. Like. We might disagree on the idea, but like we're all trying, we're all reaching for the same goal. We all want to make the project a better project. So, like, let's figure out if there's anything here, if we can improve upon it, as opposed to just sort of like attacking someone for proposing something.
0: Yeah, and I want to get to you know what what it was like covering DeFi during that 2021 cycle because it was not that was the cycle that was like the bull. Everything was exciting. All these different experiments, whether they you know good or bad, they were happening. So. What was it like covering DeFi and especially stablecoins at that time? Because you had Luna, you had Mim, you had Faye, you had like everybody like had their moment being the quote unquote main character, like being like, you know, the center of attention. So what was it like covering DeFi during that time, especially stablecoins?
2: It, it was a lot of fun. Um, I think I suffered a lot from, if you guys know the IQ meme of like, you have the left band, which is like 50 IQ <laughs> and they just into things. And you have the middle band that like, tries to think through everything, but is never like one step ahead of where the action is. And then you have the far right side where they're like a step ahead of the action. And I've always found myself in the middle. So um, yeah, I was, you know, (laughs) I was never too successful doing like the L1 trade or like getting into Luna, timing anything perfectly like that. I've never been much of a trader. Um, I just, you know, farmed pretty conservatively in like smart spots, mainly fracks and then a lot of, a lot of ETH holding. So it was a lot of fun, though. I think it allowed me to grow the YouTube channel pretty quickly. There was just so much mind share. People were trying to figure out what yield farming was, what DeFi was, and I think to this day there's still like very few content creators that are not that are like refusing to cover anything that's like a pump and dump or scammy, and that are actually covering what's innovative. Um, which is what I focused on. So I only wanted to cover a project if I thought it brought some innovation. If it was just like a farm for the sake of a farm, it, it really didn't interest me and I never ended up covering it. And I think there's still only a few people that are, are doing that to this day. So I think there's definitely like room for more folks that if you're watching this and want to create content that's helpful to folks, you, you definitely can.
0: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with that more. I feel like we're in in a sense we're in a content desert because a lot of people want to cover like, oh, like invest in this, make money, this and that. But like, if you're really covering the innovation that's going on, especially at the DeFi application level, and you're like one of the pioneers in doing that. Um, and so going so going back to the cycle, like what other, you know, other than Frax, like what other projects were you excited about during that time? What other projects did you think were novel?
2: Yeah, it's a it's a good question. It's funny because, you know, looking, if you look, zoom out and where we're at today, there's only like, Really, like a handful of projects that have sort of any relevancy and or bring any innovation to the table, <laughs> but it, but at the time I was I was fascinated with everything. I was very fascinated with how Curve worked. I thought you know it was a unique experiment and a new model for for tokens. I think stablecoins were really the great narrative of the last cycle. Uh, to your point, I you know I did a lot of work with Fae. I did a lot of work with Frax. Everyone's familiar with UST. Um, everyone's familiar with the drama around Dai, and everyone's familiar with the success of USDC and sort of the hesitancy around USDT. And so, I think stablecoins of the last cycle were like one of the biggest, if not probably the biggest, narrative that everyone was focused on. Um, so there was, you know, I did a lot of lot of stuff around there. Um, also, very fascinated you, with. Yeah. I was going to say, also very fascinated with market makers and exchanges, and and frankly, like very impressed like looking back at it Uniswap V3 was such an important innovation it's so impressive so
0: yeah i couldn't agree more i'm a big uni v3 fan and everything they built there um do you have any reflections on last cycle like anything you learned after after you know the hype was said and done like what are your most important takeaways
2: yeah it's interesting i think we a few things like one is that looking back on it projects would launch and we would sort of our, just our default belief was that they would sort of last forever and they would go on. And then like, if you look at the last six months to a year, it's been like everyone, everyone that didn't have true product market fit. And when I say that, I mean like they're not paying for users with, with a farm has slowly been shutting down. And like back then we sort of just took for granted, like, oh, this project is going to be around for years and years. It's going to capture share. when in truth things like fade out pretty quickly. And, um, I think the other big takeaway is that the incentives just are not sustainable. Like if you're paying someone for product market fit, if you're paying someone to use your product in whatever way you're doing it, whether it's a, with incentives, a farm, et cetera, in my opinion, you're, you're just sort of like hiding the fact that you don't have product market fit and pushing that problem off.
1: So what yeah. would you do differently next cycle, uh, Justin, seeing this, you know, ha- having learned this? Would you continue well, a being a humble it- farmer?
2: I don't really do do much farming anymore. The only thing I, I hold is, is Coinbase Staked Ether. When I bought it, it was trading at a pretty big discount. And so it was just trying to stack ETH. And I think it, Coinbase is trustworthy enough for me personally. Um, but Kit, to answer, or Capital K, I'm not sure how, you, how you'd prefer me it to doesn't matter. refer to you. But... Kit, Kit,
1: <laughs> because it's more endearing to hear you say my name.
2: <laughs> I just call well, Kit, Kit, to be honest. <laughs> cool. Yeah.
1: Um,
2: I think the big thing is... It, Everyone launched a token over the last two years. Like, if you had a project, it just was natural that you had a token. And like, well, we can talk about what we're building in Astaria later. But we're we're not building a project to create a token. Like, we only want to have a token if it if it makes sense to have one. If there's like actually a real purpose there. Um, we've seen like governance debatable if it's a true use case that sort of got memed into existence. Um, but I think how you go about thinking about your token, and even if you have a token, you know, for, you don't need a token for the first few years of launch, right, you can launch something. And if you don't have adoption, if you don't have users, well, then you you might not be building the right thing, you don't have to jump to a token, you can keep iterating and iterating. Once you launch that token, you're sort of trapped into something. Or at least you have sort of a moral obligation to the people that hold that token to sort of perform for them or add value to them.
1: Mm-hmm. Got it. And it- know the current meta right now as i scroll through my timeline it's always about guide to xyz airdrop abc airdrop on uh, Like it, literally it like
0: do make, dude, it, make stop. it stop
1: right i feel like <laughs> these airdrop guys are so clickbaity and it it's my timeline is starting to feel like how you know on youtube the thumbnails when you see like the guy's mouth is like and like, you know, 18,000% yeah. APR. Like, I'm starting to, to, to feel that way again. And do you think that the retail has learned their lesson of like chasing these unsustainable yields? Or when do you think this sophistication that you have is going to, to dawn on people?
2: Well, I think it already has. I think, I don't know of any projects that are like thriving with just sort of like a, a farm as a service where all they have is a farm. I mean, every every token across the board that's not, really BTC and ETH has been has been punished for it and hit hard. And I think things have come back to reality a good bit. Um, I will say, though, like, in December of 2021, so just about a year ago, I I put out a video of what I was expecting for 2022. And I I did say I thought I got some things wrong and some things right. But I did say, I think the like 2021 was the year of the airdrop. I mean, I like for me, there were you can have like life changing results from airdrops like with ribbon. I put one ETH in the platform, and I think you got a forty thousand dollar worth airdrop. That of course I immediately swapped right to right to USDC <laughs> or, or ETH after. But um, yeah, I mean the airdrop I don't think makes sense as a mechanic to bootstrap communities anymore, right? Like the rational play when you get an airdrop is to sell it. Frankly, like we we very often see tokens outperform ETH or dollars. I mean, especially not ETH. Um, and so I don't think it's a great way to bootstrap a community. I mean, you're just sort of getting some cell pressure. Uh, the people that got the airdrop are unhappy that they didn't get enough. And the people that didn't get it are unhappy that you didn't give it to them. So you sort of can't please anybody with it. Like, I got the ribbon airdrop. I did nothing to, you know, quote unquote, deserve that. But I was still like a little bit upset I didn't get more, which is sort of a flaw in me. But it's also just goes to show you like the human nature aspect of it that I, I don't know if it'll be a great bootstrapping mechanic
0: for communities in the future. Yeah, I think with Uniswap, when they did their airdrops, since they were the first one, everybody was so happy. They were like, it was like Christmas. It's like, you got it? You got your Unistimmy? You got Unistimmy? It was great. It was good vibes all around. It was like, you know, 2020. It was still like DeFi summerish. And, you know, it was, you know, they were still like, because if you use Uniswap at that point, you were like, I I guess you can say now, like a DeFi OG. Like, I even Mm -hmm. have a friend that isn't even DeFi native. And he like... Ended up like doing like a little bit of farming and like trading on Uniswap, and he got the airdrop, and he was like, "Wait, what just happened?" Like, there was a certain magic back yeah. then, but now yeah. like that meta has been played out, um, that incentive has been played out, and then like by the time you see like threaders writing for engagement to get like, "Hey, like this is the next airdrop," um, like it's over, it's over. Yeah. See Did, did you guys do, see? I, I
1: don't ch- think so. So sorry, I, I, as we, before we move on, I just wanted to, to bring this up because like when I talk to folks who are uber, uber retail like this concept of an airdrop and and re- receiving this and tokenomics design, like I was, you know, I was just trolling, but I went into this a, a tokenomic workshop and they were talking about, you know, dual token designs and how you have one token as your governance token and then you have another token as like a utility token. And uh, it's you need to manage the velocity of your token because when it's not ideal for when people want to swap out your token for a stable coin. And I'm like, this is a workshop and there's like 30 people in this workshop listening to this stuff. And I'm just like, oh my God, like this is still being spewed as like the latest and greatest. And and this is like a bootcamp pseudo type for uh, other startups. Like that, that are non crypto, obviously. So, in my mind, like, I don't think so. I think we're going to have another crop of this airdropping, unsustainable yield, and just it's just going to be a a bigger one. No, I
0: agree. It's going to come in a different form under a different name. I mean, ICOs became yield farming and NFTs, and it's going to come some other way the next cycle. I don't know what it's going to look like. I have a theory, it might look like initial social offerings, and people just sell like themselves or their their memes or some shit like that i'd probably i don't know i'm just like talking out my ass right now but i'm thinking like what will like the next like you know money grab nomic thing look like and it could be anything it's just like you know the same thing wrapped in like different gift wrapper
2: mm-hmm. yeah no absolutely i on the note of airdrops did you guys see the thread it came out recently of like looking back on the Uniswap, uh, you know, I think a couple years later or something like that, uh, basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This thread just came out and I, I don't know the exact numbers. Maybe you guys can, when you're editing it, like pull up the article or the thread on screen, but something like 90 something percent of people that got the airdrop, like have sold 90 something percent did not contribute to governance and like did nothing with the project itself after. And yeah, it just made me think like, I think the, the folks that are designing, the next Uniswap right now and whatever that may be, we'll probably think about it a little more precisely than just like a blanket airdrop. But we'll see. I mean, you have have to distribute a token somehow, so.
0: Yeah. When it comes to airdrops, it's just like one small part of tokenomics and with tokenomics, you're trying to, you're asking yourselves, what actions do I want to incentivize from the community? And so, like, you know, and like from based on like what you're doing, whether it's like an NFT marketplace, whether it's a stable coin whether it's an exchange or like, okay, like what do I want to incentivize the user to do and will it benefit me? And like some things will work because it's like the first time something's being tried out. I think like Curve, the VE system, perfect example, then Frax doing their version for a stable coin, you know, worked perfectly for them. And then like other VE systems come out, I guess we're like yet to see how they work out for like other systems. But like VE was like meant for Curve, you know what I mean? And I'm sure in the future, like there'll be some new novel tokenomic mechanism that everyone's just going to like, it's going to be perfect for the person who tries it out and project who tries it out first, but then you're going to have like your forks and copycats and stuff.
2: Yeah. Out of curiosity, like, I'm curious what, so it's, it sounds like you're very much aligned with the VE system or at least believe it to be the, the best option that we have now, at least for curve and Frax. Like I'm curious, mm-hmm. like why you think that, um, because I go back and forth on it, and I'm, I'm certainly not. Yeah, that, I was gonna actually there.
0: ask. I was actually going to ask you that as well. But like, why do I think? Why do I like the VE system? I think for to answer for Frax, you know, I think the one of the most important things for Frax is to be able to like lock their stablecoin and lock liquidity, and to be able to incentivize that. And like the VE system, like right now, has been the best system, and has proved itself to be the best system to do that. Because like, in order to have a stablecoin, you need liquidity and you need to have it locked for a certain period of time. And I'm sure in the future there'll be like other like mechanisms that built, built on top of fracks or whether it's built by fracks or third party that allows people to lock fracks for whatever reasons, maybe it's like a quasi CD account, but I think, I mean, like you look how, you know, traditional banks work or like, you know, your local bank down the street, you can go open a CD, a certificate of deposit, you're basically locking your dollars for like X amount of years and then the bank can do whatever it wants with it. Like. You just need the same thing in DeFi. And that's like, that's how I kind of viewed the uh, VE system. And for Curve, like, I think that they had the first mover advantage on it. And it was like very novel. I don't think it would work for every exchange, but I think for Curve, especially since it's a stable swap um, and they're trying to, you know, same thing, they're trying to like lock liquidity. And at the time, like, you know, that was the best way to get the most amount of liquidity. And, you know, they had like the highest TVL for a while and this and that, you know, now it's kind of proving out with Uniswap V3 that, having the most TVL is the most important thing. But, you know, for it still is, you know, a big factor in, you know, something that matters. So that's my initial um, what do you think?
2: Yeah, I think you make some great points. And I, I agree with you that it's a little different when we're talking stable coins because like it, it does sort of make sense to pay for liquidity there. I I think less so for other products. But mm-hmm. for me, like the big the big thing that leaves me undecided about curve and I'm I'm certainly not a curve expert. I just have A decent enough understanding is simply that, like, you're paying if you're paying for liquidity, like, that liquidity would not be there naturally, but by design, right? Like, you have to, you're, if you're incentivizing something and people aren't willing to pay enough for that product for it to be there naturally, it's a bit weird to me, right? Like, the liquidity Mm -hmm. fees should simply match the demand, right? If the liquidity providers are not getting paid enough from the natural fees, then like, there probably shouldn't be a market there. If you're just looking at like a natural market. So like if you look at Curve, you notice a couple things. Like one volume is, is pretty low relative to TVL, which is fine. Like we're in somewhat of a bear market. Um, and if you also look at fees, like some of the, the, the pools charge one BIP, three BIPs, four BIPs. The reason they can do this is simply because Curve holders are subsidizing that by Curve emissions. And of course, Curve emissions go down over time. The curve most people i don't actually don't know most but a good portion just sell the emissions to like accrue some sort of profit they're selling to eth or dollars and so we have less emissions coming in the pipeline we have continual sell pressure and i just don't know where that ends up i suppose like the only out for curve that i can imagine is that it becomes like this currency hub where people like this is like the liquidity sink where all liquidity lives it attracts a massive amount of tbl but i think my hunch is like with uniswap v3 for everything that's not a stablecoin and even stablecoins do have like tighter ranges on uniswap v3 like uni v3 is just a better mechanism yeah. to provide liquidity and so i i just think like you know if you're subsidizing this if the if curve holders are subsidizing this it might make sense but i just wonder what happens what as incentives trickle down it's sort of like the the bitcoin having problem right like yeah. at what point do the rewards not justify miners for bitcoin. And yeah,
0: the idea, I guess yeah the idea with with curve it's the emissions are bootstrapping uh liquidity and like hopefully and like the idea is at some point the fees will eventually like reach equilibrium or like be worth it like more so yeah. than the subsidies but I agree with you on the uniswap v3 points. I actually think I actually heard that um there's actually more stable swap volume on uni v3 than there mm. is on curve mm. which I found to be an interesting uh, statistic. The thing with Uni V3 is like they have real yield, like especially for those one percent like exotic pairs, especially at the beginning. Um, and you know, with the majors too. Like uni, I so Uni V three like definitely like is probably stronger as a mechanism right now than like curve v2. But I think it's like if you look at, like at like the bigger picture too, I think curve is much farther along being like in the Dow space and farther along as, like, being an on-chain entity and interacting with other entities on-chain than Uniswap. Uniswap hasn't done shit in that area. And, like, we're going to see, like, how much it matters in the future because, like, at the end of the day, it could just come down to, like, numbers and people just going to Uniswap V3. But, you know, if I'm thinking, I know I'm, like, kind of shifting the subject from, like, a DAO's perspective. Like, i put it this way. Like, with Curve, Convex, and Frax, like, you know, the cartels are on-chain. You know, exac- you know exactly who's, like, has, like, the VECRV. You know exactly, like... How you can see on chain how it works with the Uniswap v3, you know, with Uniswap labs, I guess. I'll call it, like, the cartels are off chain, they just like raise this huge round, like 155 million to so, like all these VCs and stuff. Like, why are they raising an equity round if they have like what, what are they exactly doing on chain? So, like, that's like the one thing. Like, that's why like I lean a little bit more towards curve because, in a sense, they're like DeFi native, but like, I'm still like you know, kid can tell you I'm, I'm the sucker for the V3 mechanics. Yeah.
1: So, so yeah, Dave, let I me think jump in here. I, uh, oh yeah. yeah just r- I, 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 I want to talk. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. Just some immediate thoughts. I think you raised two great points, Dave. The first is that curve is like truly on chain and that like everyone building curve is trying to drive value to curve. Whereas I think at Uniswap the team, and this is a hunch is tr- focused on driving value to the equity, not the token. I think like, it's pretty apparent if you just look at the action. So definitely a point to curve there if you're a crv holder and i think the other huge thing that you sort of alluded to at the dow point is that curve does have much better ux like for an average person like me you guys anyone watching it's very simple right like you just deposit one asset you know you're taking price exposure to the other but you're not really setting a range this is sort of like all done for you in the back end and it allows you to be more composable like frax can build on top of you other people can build products on top of it Whereas with Uniswap, like you have to be pretty sophisticated to be competitive and that's good and bad, right? But like uh, from an average Joe's perspective, like it's certainly much easier to, to provide liquidity on Curve yeah. and Uni and do so profit f-
0: profitably. Yeah. And Uniswap has it. Well, mm-hmm. Kate, I'll let you go. Uh, I know okay. you, yeah,
1: same. So I, I just wanted to, to double click on the thoughts on the VE element first. So for Curve's point specifically, I think Curve's product is not just the Dex. I think Curve's product is twofold, it's both the DEX and the CRV token. Like the gauge system of Curve is a product in and of itself. That's why you see all these bribes and all these other periphery uh, things being built on top of Curve, not just the DEX, but the CRV emission itself. So I think that's kind of the way you kind of have to think about it for Curve versus Uniswap is that the CRV token is one of their products. Hey, we'll help you grow by giving you some of our token. Tell us where to direct it, and then projects can kind of build on top of it. So a project doesn't have to use their own native token. Whereas Fraxus goes ham and uses Curve and FXS to (laughs) liquidity. So that's that's kind of the way I see it. And I think we got to think a level deeper onto the vote escrow mechanic, like in general how. Once you put something, once you lock up your uh, VE tokens with Convex, Convex does this thing where they separate control and cash flow. CVX CRV holders have access to full cash flow, but they do not have access to control because they can no longer vote. Only you know CVX or VL CVX token holders can vote. So all those CRV people willingly gave up control for more cash flow. And I think that is what's uh, interesting with the VE tokenomic model is where you can now modularize cash flow and control of a protocol into two separate products, and then there's like staking or locking derivatives like a pitch FXS or uh, you know a CVX FXS or all of these other kind of liquid locking wrappers kind of comes out, which adds more to that. Uh, control versus cash flow mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think yeah. about this a lot.
0: <laughs> so, no, okay. I remember, like, you know, me and you talking during the spring, trying to like figure out like what was going on with like fracks and convex and like and, and everything. Um, this like kind of brings me back to that. But no, it's an interesting point. Like the VE system, you know, when you break it down, it, even it has everything like bundled together at first. And then when you build on top of, it, top of it, you can like split it apart. But at the end of the day, like Convex is an aggregator. It's an aggregator of voting power. It's an aggregator of, you know, sharing revenue. And then they just take a cut on top of that. It's just a matter of like, is it sustainable? Can like the rewards of CRV keep up uh, Convex like in, well into the future? We
1: can say the same so. thing I, about I, Curve. I, yeah, I, I, go I, ahead. I think Curve, I think Curve, like I said, it'll be like, hey, you don't need to build a DEX for your token in your project. I have a DEX. Come use mine. By the way, I also have tokens to help incentivize your pool for you. So they kind of provide mm-hmm. almost this whole business unit that you can just plug in. It, it, it's a SaaS, right? It's Curve is a SaaS product that, that you just come in and the price it's you have a to last,
0: pay. It's a liquidity as a service.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. It's, it's a last. Um, I, I I think I think Justin coined that term uh, a while back when he was working with his his previous company. <laughs> it wasn't me. No, I, I can't feel. take
2: credit for that. I think that was Nate, the CEO of Ondo. But uh, ah, yeah, we did a okay. lot of <laughs> liquidity as a service. Uh, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. He, was, he was just lasting around. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, I, I kind of want to ask you, Justin, about like where do you see the future of just like, not just DeFi, but of ETH as a whole, because I I know you're building something, you know, that is adjacent to DeFi, but I I want to get your large overview picture first.
2: Yeah, I think right now we're in this phase where like everything useless is sort of getting washed out, which is, is probably a good thing. And I think we're seeing that like only there were only really a few like crucial innovations that happened you know, in DeFi summer, obviously like Uniswap being a great example, Aave being a great example, Stablecoins like as a class being a great example. And I think like, I mean, the hope is right that more real world use cases that provide real value to people happen on chain. Like the hope is more value from the world gets put on chain, tokenized, and like frees people up to do more things with their assets. It's obviously like very, very hard to predict what the future is. But I think we all sort of like have an idea for what, what like common things are that would, that we would like to see on chain like um i don't play video games anymore but when i was a kid i played world of warcraft and world of warcraft has like an in-game economy and i think you know that this is like the perfect example of like instead of trading on the world of warcraft system like if that financial economy could live on chain whether its own scaling solution or whatever it may be that would just be a better system Um, I think like the idea of bringing real world assets on chain, like what you're working on, Kit, is super cool and like something we want to focus on at Astaria. And, um, you know, it's very hard to predict what the future will be. But my hope it's providing real world utility to people and moving away from being like, quote unquote, a shitcoin casino, which is like what I think Ethereum and crypto in general has been largely right. Like a lot of it is just thinking ICOs are the next big thing, but really we're just sort of gambling, thinking yield farming is the next big thing. And a lot of it was gambling, uh, which has its purpose and it's fun. But hopefully, like we provide real value in the future.
0: Yeah, no, I I agree. Like, I think with any like new technology, at first you have those scams and fringes and this and that, but eventually, you know, the quality does shine. It does take time. And then, you know, first, slowly, then all at once. I mean, that's exactly what happened with the internet. Um, but yeah. I actually wanted yeah, I wanted to go into your builder journey a bit before we got into Staria. Because, you know, from when I first met you, you were at Brink, and then you went to Ando, and then that's and you ended up at Staria. Like, how'd you start as a builder in the space? And what was it like going, you know, being a builder and doing media?
2: Yeah, well, I, I was super lucky. So a lot of credit goes to luck. Um, I never thought of myself as being in the crypto space. I never purchased crypto until right when COVID was happening. I can give like a quick backstory. Um, So grew up in Connecticut, went to Boston University. I think I mentioned earlier, I studied film there. So I, I worked in the entertainment industry. As soon as I finished at BU, I moved to Los Angeles where currently yet uh and worked in media and entertainment so worked uh initially on the tv show hell's kitchen at fox and then moved to the tv show the animated show did you meet uh, Gordon yeah wait, i wh- did once. wait
0: what uh, <laughs> wait, wait wait okay sorry you what was it like meeting gordon ramsay well i
2: was such a low-level production assistant uh, it, it was a terrible job my, my job was to um it was just manual labor, like scraping adhesive, using chemicals to scrape adhesive off the tapes, so that they could reuse the tapes for the next season. I was just doing that twenty four seven, so it was
0: brutal, oh. but it was it was a good experience. Oh,
1: wow! Um,
0: and then you got the Family Guy. Did you meet uh, Billy, Seth MacFarlane? No, Seth, yes, Seth, not Billy MacFarlane. Seth MacFarlane. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, so he didn't he didn't he doesn't come in much anymore. He has a recording studio at his house for like recording episodes. But every so often when there's like a season finale or a big show, he'll come in and do a table read. So when the writers finish a script, pretty much everyone from the show gets together in a room and reads it, which is really fun. And so he did a couple of those. Um but yeah, I was a director's assistant there, so like also like pretty menial. And I, I wasn't too satisfied, so I decided to get my MBA from the University of Southern California, which is where Kit and I actually met. We have a nice right little meeting story. <laughs> Kit was, Kit's always been a, a really <laughs> nice person, very gracious and uh, very, very welcoming. Um, but yeah, so while I was there, I worked in entertainment at Paramount Pictures and Strategy and BizDev and then moved to Snapchat. And when COVID was breaking out, I was at Snapchat, didn't know what I was going to do. And so when I met there was like starting a business in the cryptocurrency industry, which ended up being Brink. So um, worked on that project for about a year uh, the project is similar to Gelato, if folks are familiar with that. So they're going after the same sort of like automation.
0: I'm a little bit familiar.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: Um, so, so did that and then uh, moved over to Ondo, where Ando's pivoting now quite a bit, di- like building something quite a bit differently after like the learnings they took from the liquidity as a service product. But basically at Ondo we like partnered with a lot of stablecoin issuers, Frax, Faye, um, we were going to partner with UST, and then, unfortunately, well, for, unfortunately or fortunately, Luna collapsed. Um, and I think there were a couple other stablecoin providers we partnered with as well. Um, and we were basically like trying to market make on chain or provide liquidity on chain. The program grew pretty quickly, um, just because like DAOs truly, as you guys see with Frax BP, like DAOs truly need liquidity, and it's it's expensive to get. And so I think the project at one point had 100 million dollars of TVL. Um, and I, I just really learned a ton there. I, and I was continuing to put out content, build an audience. And, um, I met my co-founder Joseph DeLong, who was the former CTO of Sushi Swap. Uh, we hit it off. He shared a little bit about what he wanted to build. And I told him it was a fantastic idea. And we decided to basically run off and raise money and, and start a what's now Astaria. And, uh, it's been working on that since March. And, I just feel truly grateful. I mean, every the stars sort of aligned. I'm I'm grateful. I found stars it. So, aligned. <laughs> yeah, I'm grateful that we raised money at the right time. I think I I really feel for teams that are trying to raise now. I mean, you can do it, but you're going to raise less money at a worse valuation. It's just going to be harder to find the right people and build. So feel really grateful, and we're we're gearing up for a launch in January now. So just about a month and a half away from launching.
0: Yeah. Oh, Joe was one of my first interviews when I had the Gelato podcast going. And really? Right, yeah. Um, and this was right around the time he it was like right after eat in twenty twenty one. So he dropped his like life story thread. And I was like, damn, that is a hell of a story. Yeah, and Joe's I mean, a, he, a great yeah. guy. I'm mean, uh, a huge fan. Yeah. Yeah.
2: No, I've I've learned I've learned a ton from him. I mean, it's I just feel very fortunate to be working with and it's not just Joe, it's the rest of our team too. I, everyone on the team is I think best in class at what they do. And so it makes our, everyone's job just so much easier and that everyone's, everyone's a top performer.
0: So I have a great story about Joe saving me on my cross country road trip. So I was driving across, I, and I somehow ended up in San Antonio when I was driving across the country. (laughs) I had no working cards. Um, I bet like I had like cards on my phone, but like since it was Texas or wherever I was in Texas, not everyone would take Apple pay. I would say like less than half did. And so I was just like, I was struggling, man. <laughs> and anyways, I end up in San Antonio and I have lunch with uh, Joe and I've like talked to him online before. So it's like my first time meeting him. And like, I like explained to him my story and he was like, dude, I got this lunch. Do not worry about it. Like, or do you need anything? Do you need my I'm like, no, like I'll figure it out. Like, trust me, I'll be fine. Like I'm going to meet family in Arizona. But like, you know, at a, at, a time, at a time when it was like, when I was like down bad in my life, like Joe was there to help.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel very grateful for it too. Cause um I mean, trust is so important when you're co-founding something and especially oh, me yeah. as like a, a normie that cannot code, right? I'm not an engineer. So like to not have that insight is tricky, but knowing that Joe has it is, is important. And then, um, and Joe's yeah, like, to your point,
0: he has, yeah, go ahead.
2: No, I was just going to say, and he, Joe's the, the type of person that would would make sure that your outcome is, is good before his is right. He'll always look after mm-hmm. you first, which is, is such a great trait.
0: Yeah. I mean, and he has the experience too from like, his time at sushi swap and before that consensus and, you know, you know, yeah. big, big Joe simp over here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a big Joe Sim, but I'm also a big Justin Sim too, right? Like yeah. Justin, you know, he's not going to toot his own horn, but I feel like he's gone through like such uh, pivotal roles in his journey as a builder to kind of get to his position right now as the CEO, right? He has not only a, a business background from the the MBA program and kind of geared him right up. He got his hands dirty, helped build Brink, helped BD the shit out of Ondo, and now like he's. help with the raise, I would feel like it's the combination of the both of you is what resulted in such an amazing raise and for such an amazing product. The one-two punch. The one-two punch.
2: There's a nice unit. J and J. I appreciate it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, J and J. But now, of all this uh, pent-up teasing of the audience, please tell them, what is Astaria? What are you guys solving, and how can they learn more about it?
2: Sure, um, so we are building an NFT lending platform for for folks that are familiar. There's like this is not applicable to Astaria, but to date, there's basically two types of NFT lending platforms. One type basically uses like what we call the floor model, and this is like um, JPEG or Bendow. They'll basically say like we're, we'll just talk about Board Apes. We'll say like if you have an ape we're always going to lend you this amounts amount against it we're going to treat all apes the same and if the floor price deviates and you've borrowed too much we're going to end up liquidating you so the benefit here is you get like this instant liquidity it's super easy you just drop your nft and you get this money out and you don't have to really think about anything and no one has to think about anything so it's fast liquidity that parks part works really well But the downside to that is that most NFTs in a collection are really not floor pieces. So really only about 30% of a collection is floor. And so you're sort of like losing a lot of value here by just catering to like a floor loan to value ratio. In addition to that, and this is more of like a personal thesis, I think if you're creating an NFT project to have the mindset that you're like going to end up and you're going to end up with fungible assets as opposed to non-fungible assets, which is sort of like pseudo swaps model where... We're like, we're going to spin up a pool, everything in this pool we're going to treat is the same. Everyone can trade against it in the same way. It sort of defeats the purpose of an NFT, and I don't think that's where the future is going. Like, I don't think the future is going to be these 10,000 PFP collections. I think we'll talk about like what the future of NFTs might be in a little bit. But um, yeah, so that's the first model is this like auto liquidation floor loan to value ratio model where we're treating everything the same. And then you have the other end, which is uh, best exemplified by NFTFi or NiftyFi. And they're probably the market leader to date. And they've done an incredible job at like building out their business. And their model is, is basically the complete opposite. They say each asset is unique. If you want a loan, you have to put your asset in our platform and then people can give you bids. You can negotiate something in Discord. Each loan is going to be customized for that unique asset. So the advantage here, of course, is that we're like, we're respecting the non-fungible nature. We're giving you an accurate, fair valuation or presumably fair, right? Like both parties are agreeing on it. But the downside is it's very manual. It's very slow. It's not too competitive. um, You might not get too many bids on your piece and it's not instant. It takes a while. So in our view, neither of these are perfect solutions. So we decided to come up with a different model. And we call this the three actor model. So we add, we have the borrower and the lender, and we add a third actor that we call the strategist. So the strategist role is basically to be the appraiser for the entire system. And there's actually already a lot of companies that are exclusively focused on appraising NFTs. Some great examples would be like Upshot, Deep NFT Value, Spiciest. NFT bank NFT valuations. I think Zapper does it as well. There's about 10 companies or so, maybe a little more, maybe a little less that appraise NFTs basically professionally. And so we're working with all of these folks to be strategists on our platforms. And basically the strategists can say whenever they want, I'm going to spin up a vault, in that vault I'm going to merkleize and post any number of valuations for any number of NFTs I want. They can appraise 10 F- NFTs, they can appraise 100,000, a million, whatever they want. That vault, that all those appraisals make up a vault, and then anyone can provide liquidity to that vault saying that they like those terms and they agree to it. And then, of course, anyone can borrow from it, and that liquidity is available for them to borrow instantly. So we think it's a pretty unique and novel approach, and ultimately, we're just decided to, we're excited to see if the market's receptive to it in about a month and a half. Um, but yeah, that's like a high-level explainer of what we're building. I'd, I'd be curious to hear your guys' thoughts.
1: I want to learn a bit more about how the strategist vaults like operate. Could you share what are some parameters that these guys are setting and things of that nature?
2: So the strategists basically have to determine three things. They they never actually have to state the value of the piece. They just have to say how much that piece can borrow. So there's no like concept of a floor price. There's no loan to value ratio. It's just this board ape can borrow 60 ETH. This board ape can borrow 55 ETH. So they set the amount you can borrow. They said the duration, which is just how long the loan is, and then the interest rate. And all of these strategists are always competing. So on our platform, obviously, the best terms get bubbled up. And so these strategists are competing to offer users the best terms, which we hope will bring rates down. As far as like how the strategist actually does that work, a lot of that is sort of like back office calculations. Mm-hmm. Pretty much all of these platforms that we've talked to, they have their own models that they basically ingest data, look at historical sale prices, volume, whatever it may mm-hmm. be. And they built a, mo- a model unique to each collection, um, and then fine tune it from there.
1: So, how do they select which collection to do? Or more, rather, how do they select which NFT within that collection? Like, I want to do Board Ape one hundred one, and you know, I want to do Board Ape uh, two ninety six. Like, how would they select these these apes?
2: So, each I mean, each NFT has a token ID attached to it, right? So, right. So the, the data is all available to the strategist and they could say like token ID 262 is good, 263 is good, 264 maybe that was a stolen NFT or it has bad traits like we're going to lend less to it and that would be the approach they would take.
1: And I as a token holder of uh, token ID 262 of this board, Abe, I would come in and just kind of filter by my wallet and I would see like all these vaults that could apply to me and then I and then choose which vault to LP into.
2: Yeah, it's a good qu- question. So if you're the borrower, what happens is you come to the platform, your wallet's connected, and then for every NFT that you have a strategy for, all you have to do is you know click one or two buttons and then borrow, a- borrow that amount of capital against your NFT, and your NFT gets locked into a smart contract until you repay that debt. From a liquidity provider's perspective, this is sort of the other side of the coin. If I'm lending, if I'm like, trusting a strategist to post value correct values or i like the values i'm seeing so i want to lend to that strategist like let's just say upshot you really like them you can lend to upshot you can see every single strategy they've made you can see historical performance um, and then make a determination from there you can also say independently like I'm Kit. I'm really plugged into the NFT space. I know what I'm doing here. I can spit up my own vault. I can write my own strategies. I can lend to my own vault. And then people can borrow against that. And you can, of course, get interest payments for doing so.
1: Oh, I see. So I can be my own strategist while also being a borrower as well. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Uh, Is that what you expect people to do? Or um, also, do strategists get a cut, you said, of everything, like interest payments or? How does that yeah,
2: work? so strategists—it's you can think of it just like a urine strategist. So they're getting—I, um, it's configurable, but like we're assuming strategists will get basically ten percent of profits, and they're only getting paid when the vault performs well. So if the vault makes money, the strategist makes a little bit of money as well for writing those strategies. Um, and I think you had another question in there that I, I forgot.
0: Um, so do you expect most people to be strategists or borrowers? I or don't
2: no? know. I th- I think the strategist role is is pretty challenging. I think some folks are probably like really experts in niche communities like Nounsdale, let's just say they really know the Nounsdale community and can write competitive terms. So in that case, it might make sense. But it, I think it'll probably be pretty hard for like an average individual to compete on a broad scale with these platforms that have built models to value, you know, 30 collections, 50 collections, etc. But we'll see. I mean, hopefully the, the best terms win. So And what collections
1: are you launching with?
2: So it's totally up to the strategist. Um, The strategists we talk to have like a total wide range of what they cover. I think we'll probably launch with, let's say, five to seven strategists, but we'll see. Uh, Some strategists are hyper-specialized on just CryptoPunks. Some are hyper-specialized on just Apes. Some do the top 10. Some do the top 20. I think one even uh, appraises 700 collections. And so there's like a wide gamut here of folks that are trying to cast a wide net and then folks that are trying to be really precise and know a specific collection really well. I I also just wanted to, like, we're, we were probably going to transition to talk about the future of NFTs. So like one of the things we're trying to do is expand in people's mind what an NFT is when they think about it. And so like at launch, we'll be supporting loans against Uni V3 positions, which are of course NFTs and something that hasn't been done mm. before, which we're... Yeah, we're really excited about then Loans Against Liquidity's Chicken Bonds. If you guys are familiar, mm. it's a pretty interesting yeah, product. Um, so our goal is to like expand beyond just art and include these like financial products. And hopefully whatever comes next in the NFT space will support as well.
0: So Justin, could you uh, walk us how a uni V3 loan should work and like what are some reasons why people would want to take out a uni V3 so, I mean, uni V3 loan, is it, you know, they're bearish on a position and like, is in a way like, can you think of it as like reverse impermanent loss if like you think like it's not going to stay in range? Yeah, there's a
2: couple reasons to I guess i'll start with why you would take a unib 3 loan i think there's a ton of reasons the first is that like in some ways what our setup because we don't have forced liquidations we only liquidate if you miss your payment you can actually think of these loans as options so you're almost getting like an option against your position that sort of can hedge your exposure the other reason that comes to mind top that comes top of mind is that you can actually lever up your position now as well so you've borrowed, let's just say you have an ETH USDC position, you've borrowed 80% of the value in ETH, you could now put more capital into that position. And then all of those fees that you're getting like can automatically pay down your interest payments that you would owe to the person lending you that capital. So that's like some of the obvious reasons why you'd want to borrow, just freeing up your liquidity. As far as how it works, basically a strategist sets an appropriate range that they're comfortable with and then sets tokens that they're comfortable with. So if Kit's a strategist, he could say, I'm only comfortable with, let's just say, ETH and FRAX, anywhere between $800 ETH, 800 FRAX ETH, 800 FRAX per ETH and 1,600 FRAX per ETH, I'm willing to lend to you. If you have a position that fits those parameters, you can instantly get capital and borrow. If you're out of that range, Kit might not be comfortable as a strategist lending to you, but maybe someone else is.
0: So,
1: hmm.
0: um, I want to touch mm-hmm. on... a. I just want to touch on a point there. So I, something that I thought you said was interesting is think of it as an option. And I think that's one thing you're seeing with a lot of protocols building on top of Uniswap V3 is that they're thinking of Uniswap V3 itself as a primitive to build options on top of. And another product I heard that's doing that is Panoptic and they think of it in the same way and they can like lever up on a position like that. So I think like so to, to like the credit of uni V3. Uh, and I feel like we're only scratching the surface of what is possible and what financial primitives we can build on there with that. So um, it's going to be real interesting to see like what complex strategies the strategists will come up with uh, in uh, you know the Astaria system.
2: Yeah, and we're excited about it. All of so when you when you basically lend to a vault, you're getting standard ERC forty six twenty six tokens. Which, if folks aren't familiar, is this like standardization for yield bearing vaults. And so like we're we don't expect this at launch, but these tokens are very composable. Like we're expecting people to provide liquidity for these tokens potentially in the future where you can easily exit and enter your loan position where you might be able to like get some sort of like wide blanket exposure to the NFT market without buying a specific NFT. It sort of allows you to do some really interesting things in like these derivative projects that we're excited about. But obviously we're just want to see if we have product market fit with the with the easy stuff first
1: yeah uh, getting i, I, yeah. I want to double click on the liquidation mechanic because what you said just kind of slept right under the radar there <laughs> <Could you walk laughs> through how the liquidation works
2: yeah yeah it's a good question um so right now so liquidating nfts is is like one of the hard parts of nft loans right that's why a lot of right. projects like bend out just liquidate it based on the floor price and like, if you're close to that floor price, they're just going to force liquidate you. Yep. We have something that we call no forced liquidations, which is similar to nft Fi's model. With NFT5, they actually give the lender the loan, but because we use vaults and anyone can provide liquidity to a vault that writes strategies, we can't just give that vault the NFT, like these LPs want their capital back. And so we liquidate with a Dutch auction through Seaport. The advantage here is that uh, you guys probably are starting to see with like a lot of NFT collections... There's like limit orders basically placed for those assets there's like open orders placed and so basically like anyone can bid on this dutch auction but of course like mev bots are always watching seaport and if they can ever there's ever like an offer on that collection they can instantly liquidate it and sell so we use like a i think it's a 36 hour or maybe 48 hour dutch auction
1: okay and and you said something about the interest payment and if you keep on making that then there's no liquidation but what if the asset you know let's say this nft uh value just completely craters like what happens then
2: yeah so to like let's just make it more clear like let's say your your nft was a nice nft today you borrow 10 eth against yeah. it but in like a month's time no one cares about this thing it's worth zero let's just say right. so as a rational actor as your kit, you're very smart. You're going to say, I'm not, I'm not paying down this debt. Like I have 10 ETH the, the protocol can take my NFT. And in that case, like, so the protocol tries to liquidate your NFT. will try to, you know, get as much capital back or the protocol tries to get as much capital back as it can, but ultimately like losses are inevitable. So a lot of people, I think in the DeFi space have this mindset of like yield without risk or like these products that only accrue value, but of course, the world doesn't work that way, and like there will be vaults. Like if a strategist <laughs> does a poor job writing strategies, there will be vaults that lose money. That's just how it is. So, um, yeah, there's there's definitely no right. doubt in my mind. Like some lenders will lose capital for sure. Yeah, so, think- so
1: bad debt is a feature, not a bug, in 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 this situation.
2: I don't know if it's a feature, it's not ideal, but hopefully the strategists do a good enough job pricing risk that it it's fine, right? So like if you have a vault, that's the aggregate of 100,000 pieces, and 100 default, but the rest are fine, and they pay their interest payments, as long as the vault has a positive net return, it's something we can live with. If the vault gets totally blown out, that's like very unfortunate. But we think like the strategists we're working with are are really talented, and they do a great job. A lot of that is public, like you can look at what Upshot is doing, what NFT valuations is doing, what deep NFT value is doing. And I mean, frankly, if the lender chooses to lend to those terms, they're they're agreeing to take on that risk, so. God.
0: Yeah, I think I wanna go back to something you said, like people in DeFi sometimes don't expect the laws of finance to like work. They just think everything should be up, look, is up only, like we're in this new field, like, oh, maybe it's different this time. Um, You you definitely saw that a bit last cycle, but at the end of the day, like the laws of physics are in the laws of physics and must what goes up must come down. You know, planes can't fly without abiding to certain laws of aerospace and finance works the same, whether it's on chain or off chain.
2: Yeah, this is it's really interesting in the NFT space. If you look at NFT FI on on their Dune dashboard. The average APR for their loans is between forty to fifty percent in ETH terms, which is crazy, right? So, like, if you're a sophisticated lender, you're making a forty to fifty percent APR on ETH. They about ten percent of assets on Nifty Five, which is a great comparison. Get liquid, go to liquidation, and presumably don't rec- recoup the costs. And so, like, theoretically, or I guess hopefully, their lenders are pricing that risk in and still getting a positive return. Now, it's our hope that we bring that forty to fifty percent rate significantly down because. In our view, their model is less competitive. There's not strategists competing with each other constantly, whereas with on our platform, strategists are only getting loan origination if they're offering the best terms for that asset. So, you know, who knows what the rate will be? But I think the going rate for NFT lending will be like twenty percent, probably for blue chips, like maybe ten to twenty for board apes and is, punks. And yeah, is that like a
0: their- like one of your central kind of like KPIs per se? Is like how low you can get the interest rates to, to go, and like that's a measure of like how efficient you're making the market. So I feel like that must be uh, like- our
2: first goal is just loan origination. There's about mm-hmm. six hundred thousand to a million dollars of new loans taken against NFTs per day, which is is pretty decent for the bear market, and we easy. just want to capture yeah. as much of that as much of that as possible. Um, ultimately, like I think the rates will do a good job of settling where they're supposed to settle. So we're really just worried about load it's, issues. Wow.
0: It's only 600,000 to 2 million. I feel like there's so much room for that to grow. I feel yeah. like you're re- you're really at the ground floor of something, honestly. Oh, thank you.
2: Yeah, yeah we yeah. we hope so. And we're excited about like I, I mean, there's a lot of capital on Uniswap V3 that is not liquid. Yep. well, it's providing liquidity, but people can't get any liquidity against it. We're excited about that and, and what that might bring too. So
1: Yeah, I, I think that's super interesting, right? Because if I were a you know LP to the LP'er, meaning I'm the liquidity provider to the liquidity provider, I get UniV3 yield or a partial piece of that without any of the price action or anything that might impact me. So it's like a really nice rev share model there. And you obviously know the underlying asset is ETH and, you know, FRAX per se. Um, But, yeah, Justin, I want to ask you, you know, given that you're kind of here on the ground floor, what does success look like?
2: In the crypto space or just in in general?
1: In Astaria's, like, um, from Uh, the perspective of Astaria, like, what does success look like? Is that like a billion loan originated on Astaria or X? I thought
2: we were going to get very philosophical, uh, but no, no, no the the, comp- <laughs> the company mission is to provide instant liquidity for any on-chain asset. Um, and so today that might be your art NFTs, your apes, your punks, your uni V3 positions. But as we see more value go on-chain, we want to be the source where folks get instant liquidity against that. Um, and our model is, is a it's like we're very focused on NFTs now, but of course it works. The same type of lending model works for ERC-20s it works for any digital asset. And our goal is to capture as much of that market and offer instant liquidity for
0: anything that has value on chain. So okay. I have a, another question actually, Kit, do you have a follow-up to that? No, no, go ahead. That's good. Yeah. Um, so I think I'm coming around to being a, a DeFi Trinity fundamentalist. I'll put it that way. I think like that is the way you view. De- DeFi is Like they're not like, whether it's like the AMM, the lending platform and the stablecoin. they're not separate. They're all one in the same. So going off of that, are there any plans in the way future, you know, for Astaria to release their own stablecoin or their own AMM? I feel like a stable coin would be more likely, like the, once you like launch and get, get traction and get market share, and you're reaching a point of saying like, hey, we can like create, like we can create our own mechanism to create our own stable coin. Have you guys thought about that at all? What's your Honestly,
2: like we haven't, and it's just because building, like the first getting the first yeah, thing sh- is so hard yeah. anyway. yeah, We we don't true. have we don't even have one user yet so like we, we don't even know if the market's receptive <laughs> to our product and uh, i think,
1: <laughs> I mean, I think it's, everyone it's, on the team is just
2: yeah. everyone yeah. on the team we're all just focused on getting that first user and then you know if we had some like crazy breakout success which would be amazing then we can start thinking about that but yeah we've all just been like laser focused on this one goal and and we're a small team too there's only seven of us now full-time and so like we're all pretty busy focused
0: on That's a solid size. on this
2: one small problem yeah yeah
0: yeah. you guys are nimble enough but i'm sure everyone's highly skilled especially knowing you and knowing joe mm-hmm. like especially the people you guys would attract so i'm sure you guys are in good hands
2: yeah so, we have some so, some great folks on the team and if if you're a great front end developer please reach out too we'd love we'd love to speak to
1: you so <laughs> had to show that bullish bullish uh, uh yeah, on front just, ends I got to ask, you you have like a chicken or egg problem here, right? When you launch the platform, it's how do you get the ETH uh, liquidity to come onto your platform first? Or how do you get like an NFT holder to learn about your platform and to, you know, LP and hopefully wait for uh, ETH to come in?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. We have this the flywheel problem that Frax it seems has solved. So our flywheel is we need strategists to write good strategies that LPs LP into that borrowers borrow. And if any one of those like three things doesn't work, the system doesn't work, right? Like if strategists aren't seeing any users come on, they'll stop writing strategies, then who's going to lend to it, et cetera. And so one of our go-to-market strategies that we're thinking about because like I think in this day and age, it's a little senseless to sort of like launch with a token on day one. I think things have changed, so we won't have a token, but one of the things we've thought of is for everyone's first loan up until say $10 million, like Astaria will pay for the interest. Um, and if you model this out, like if you assume the average loan is 60 days and someone's borrowing you know, X amount, it's not too expensive. And so like our goal to attract this initial mind share is to pay for everyone's interest payments for their first loan up into, up to like $10 million or something. So we'll probably run that program at launch. Hopefully that sparks this flywheel and then and then of course we'll see what happens.
1: I see. I see. So it's like a it's like a free toaster when you open up your bank account today.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Free toaster.
0: They actually did that. <laughs>
1: yeah, I yeah, but I, I, so, have you sourced any initial liquidity from like on the ETH side, and have you sourced any initial a uh, large NFT collector on on the other side? Yeah, it's
2: a good question. Uh, so, of course, we've talked about the strategists. We've sourced all the strategists for launch. Sure. We're talking to LPs now. We have like a pretty good chunk. I'm pretty confident. You know, we have like an internal number that I, I won't share on the call, but we have like we're pretty confident we'll hit this like pretty decent internal nice. number. Um, from the borrower perspective, it's it's a little challenging, right? Like we're doing our best to reach out to DAOs like NounsDAO and these like other larger projects that have communities, but it's a little harder to talk to the borrower just because like you, Kit, might own, you might have one punk and you might be interested in borrowing, but like we can't unfortunately talk to and reach every borrower. It's just right. not scalable. And so we're trying to like figure out different ways to go about that. So of course, if you guys have any ideas, I'm all ears, but.
0: Mm. Yeah, that is interesting. How do you like attract those types of actors in the system. Yeah. yeah I wish we could just DM yeah. them and, and be like,
1: hey, we got some balls. DM them, this, them this one by
2: one. One of Joe's core competencies is uh his meme ability on Twitter. And so hopefully that'll pull through for us and, and maybe I'll make a little YouTube video or something.
1: Oh, <laughs> nice. Nice. Well I'm 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 glad you're you're gonna start making YouTube videos again because I think the space like you said earlier the, we, we're in this uh, desert of content and uh yeah we, it looks like it's, it's
0: was, been six months like I checked your YouTube channel it's just like the last thing yeah you said it's it was, em- it's what?
2: embarrassing kit what just...
0: lunar <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah kit and I were just we had dumplings the other day and I' have just been inspired by you guys like going after the content game and i it was it's so much fun but it's a lot of work I mean it just takes a lot of mind share to always be in that mode of thinking about content and creating it, like, aside from just the work of putting together video, it, it's a lot. And unfortunately I haven't had time with, with yet, but I think like as things slow down, I really, really want to get back into it. Cause it, it was so fun. Just having an engaged community and being able to bounce ideas off folks and whatnot.
0: Yeah. And we've been grinding at this every week. We've come out with a podcast since June, yeah, we haven't tough. missed the beat. Yeah. Uh, it's a team effort for sure. Um, and the, the only lot. thing I could
2: say is, it's, it's like the gym, right? Like if you miss one day, the next day after is so much harder. So like, just never, never miss a video and then you'll be good. If you miss one, yeah. you, you start cheating on
0: yourself. And know uh, we're, we're pretty disciplined in that regard. Um, and especially at the beginning for everyone out there that's thinking about it, like the most important thing is to be consistent at the beginning and that sets your foundation for everything else. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And now we're just building on top of that. We have so many different show segments, offerings that's in the pipeline for Flywheel that you yeah. know, we're just super stoked for 2023. Like it's The best is yet to amazing come. Amazing year.
2: Do you think in like three years, Flywheel will be a, a brand that's totally, obviously covers FRAX, but is like just totally DeFi focused and not just FRAX? Or do you think you'll always be attached to FRAX?
0: I think we'll always be attached to FRAX in some way, but... I think we'll definitely grow out of just FRAX, but FRAX will always be, you know, I like to make the comparison what Bankless is to Ethereum, like Flywheel is to FRAX.
1: Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. And also we're obviously bullish on FRAX itself and we're bullish on the stable coin space overall. And I, I believe like the killer app from this whole DeFi casino that we got to play around the last two years is that stable coins is the killer app. That actually yeah. survived and is still clearly rocking, right? And that's kind of where we want to plant our flag on. And without stablecoin, DeFi is completely bricked, right? Imagine USDC or USDT never actually, uh, you know, brought on more stables into the ecosystem. A DeFi would literally be nowhere. You know, the most liquid pairs to borrow, the most liquid pairs to trade is paired against a stablecoin or, or even if wants stability. Yeah. yeah. So what
2: what do you what are your guys' thoughts on next steps for maker do you think maker has a place in in this space that's yeah remain in the space or
0: yeah no absolutely it depends what path they take i'm still bullish on maker into the long term and i think they're making a lot of the right moves like from what i saw they're cutting like a lot of fat and like they're slimming down it seems like they're slimming down their team a bit um i think you know what they're they're carving their own lane in the commercial banking space whether you like it or not i mean people like you know, have their grievances against it. And for good reason, you know, them going the way they're going after real world assets um, is definitely unique. And at the end of the day, they're just trying to get the highest yield as, you know, in the most efficient way possible. Um, and so I'm still like bullish on maker into the future, but like, they're definitely, and if you're like more of a decentralization, not even a maxi, but like care about a little bit, I can see like how it can definitely be concerning. Um, I really like the way Frax is going about it as well with, you know, making like their what like their quote one their main goals being let's get a Fed master account. Simple to the point. You know, you immediately know like what you're getting, why you're getting it. Um, I like how simple and easy it is, and just like this is the one real world asset. We'll keep it simple. It's the safest one. It's the most reliable one. Um, but in terms of Maker, I, I still like the direction that they're going. Like I see them being the commercial bank of DeFi yeah. at this rate. What? Yeah. What I- do you think?
2: I actually missed it. I can you maybe give a high level explainer? I've seen a little on the Frax Telegram about Frax's plan to like get real or get yield from real world assets or real world dollars, but I'm not too familiar. How how is it different than Makers?
0: Yeah, so Are Sam firm. came on Yeah, Sam came on the pod uh 2 weeks ago and you know, one and the this this is what he said. He was like, you know, what is like the most risk-free rate in the entire world? And that's the Federal Reserve. And if we want to emulate, be, if we want to become the central bank of DeFi, like how the Federal Reserve is, like the central bank of the United States, we should emulate them. And the best way to do that is if we can get a master account, like literally like just a bank account straight up at the Fed. Um, and what I found interesting, like uh, probably like a few days after the like, interview came out, um, this news came out about FTX, like Buying some random ass bank in the yeah. Pacific Northwest with like no website, ten million dollars of deposits, and it was just like, why did they like pay a hundred million dollars at that bank? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because they had a fucking master account at the Seattle Fed, and they wanted their own master account for when they were gonna come out with their own stablecoin. Thank God they didn't. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but if they did, wow, they really? would have been yeah. So what it was gonna like what were you gonna see happen? probably is when they come out their stablecoin and say, like, hey, we have a master account at the Fed. We're getting this risk-free rate. We're going to actually pass that yield on to anybody that stakes on the FTX platform. Like, that was, the, I, I'm inferring that was the plan that was going to happen. Um, yep. And so, like, you know, the, I'm sure Sam has been thinking about this for a while, but, like, others have thought about it, too. Um, it's just, like, a matter of, like, how to get, it's just, sim- just sim- think of it as a bank account. But instead of, add yeah. It's, do you know yeah, the structure? Ahead. Cause when I last talked to Sam
2: and I think you guys should share this on the podcast as well. There's like no real world frax entity. Like there's no frax LLC. I yeah. think they dissolved the offshore corporation too. It's so like, would the idea be to spin up a new corporation that basically does this exclusively? Yeah. It's
0: funny. Cause you know, Sam prized himself on frax is a hundred percent on chain. We do everything on chain. Um, I guess, you know, I wonder, like, what, how this would be structured. He, he didn't lay out a plan of like, this is exactly what we're gonna do. This is exactly what we're gonna form. I don't really want to focus on that on the interview. I just want to put out the idea and the meme into the universe of like, this is what we're thinking. This is why we're thinking of it. But like, a few ways I would speculate on is, I think probably the easiest way to do it would do do like a reverse takeover of a bank that already is at a Fed through like some entity and like through that entity like. The Dow owns, I don't know, like, I guess like since Dow's are like legally recognized in Wyoming, can like DAOs own, I'm asking, I'm not sure if this is true, can DAOs like own banks? Like, I don't, who knows? Well, you, you got the Frax Dow should bid on the
2: SBF bank, whatever. which I saw a picture of that bank, it's the most <laughs> yeah. ridiculous uh, yeah, photo, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you guys should try it's to
0: the- buy that. <laughs> yeah, it, it looks like a, a restroom in the middle of like on a highway. Like it looks like a, or like a one, like a half bedroom apartment or some shit. Yeah. It's, it's like hilarious. the most, uh, and it's just like, that has a, it, it kind of goes to show like, you know, what does it really take to get a master account at the fed? Honestly, does it take, you know, honestly, like I, what kind of bank will Frax would like, would make a good candidate? I don't know. Um, but i I'm sure they're exploring all options. It's like, and I know like they would rather get this done sooner. They would rather get this done sooner rather than later. Like they don't want this to be like a five, 10 year dragged out process. Like it would be cool if like something could get done between like six months to two years. Just, but I think, I mean, I
2: think it's a great idea, right? Cause uh, you know, people hold USDC and sure there's it's more safe, but like, you're paying circle that yield, right? Like circle is taking that money from you and, and why not bring it on chain? So
0: yeah and like the structure of it i'll I find really interesting because like what he uh, alluded to in the chat um was like you would have you you know you know what it would be it was like you have like the you know dollars in the fed master account and then he alluded to frx usd that would be like the one-to-one to like the actual deposits at the fed and then it would be frx usd that's backing frack so if you think about it in that regard I think whatever FRX USD is would be like the entity off chain whatever holds FRX USD, and however that looks, I'm just speculating
1: here. Yeah, and and what's interesting is also Justin is if you have an account at the FMA or rather if you have an FMA account, they literally publish your books and your balance like ah. as part of their due diligence. Like I I believe it's either weekly or it's it's some ludicrous thing that the Fed just forces it basically is a insta audit every single time so like mm-hmm. even though it's a centralized entity you still have full transparency into where the hell this AMO is actually in, like change FMA to AMO and that's pretty much what it would try to do. <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know? uh, that, that's that is very cool I, I didn't know that, that that's awesome
2: I, I'm, I mean I'm very bullish on these things like I think there are f- there are use cases that deserve to be on the blockchain that aren't completely decentralized right like there should be more real world assets on chain which require a trusted third party and like i think the more value we bring on chain the better and i don't yeah, that yeah i'm excited for, yeah yeah.
1: Uh, i just want to say uh, go ahead yeah like everybody points out like hey look at the you know treasury yield the risk-free rate is 3.7 percent 3.7 percent all right and uh, Ask the same person, okay, how exactly do you execute that to get that 3.7%? And I will tell you, you will not get that 3.7% because you will go through a broker who would then charge you a fee. You would then cause slippage to actually get into the position because you, someone else is executing for you in a bashed order. So like that 3.7% is not, quote, real for the retail person. Yeah. But why not? Right? It, it totally should be. And Frax USD would basically solve this. Like buying for X- yeah. USD, you would get that yield immediately. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm, I'm all in for it. I'm here for I, it. Look at the look at the most successful real world asset on-chain, which I consider USDC. <laughs> and like tether and centralized stable oh, coins. Like those those are real world assets. Let's be real. There's like treasure, like there's like short-term bonds and dollars in a bank, and it's represented on-chain. Um and like people don't think of Standalone, yeah. as real-world assets, but they are, and they're they like they actually like act so well at what they do. We don't even think of them as real-world assets. It's kind of like you know, if you like have like a crypto product that it's act you know performing so well, it's doing what it's supposed to do. You don't think of it as crypto; it's just a good product. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. So I want, yeah. So I think that's like some food for thought for for people. And and now the idea is like, okay, like. How do we get, you know, we're not earning any yield off the short-term bonds, like circles earning those yields, uh, tethers earning those yields. How do we get those yields on chain? How do we get them passed on to, you know, your average DeFi user? And I think is thought of like the solution that goes straight for the juggler, like not like buying tre- short-term treasuries through a broker or some shit. It's like, no, we're gonna go straight to the source. We're gonna go straight to like the, the ocean, the straight to like the water, to like the top. The Fed. I'm excited. It
1: sounds great. I, I hope it happens.
0: Yeah, we're chilling hard I, here. <laughs> yeah,
1: we're chilling super hard here. But I feel like yeah. just, just thinking about this topic and a yeah. DeFi protocol just going after it is like laudable. Mm-hmm. You know, just even yeah. thinking about like, hey, we're no longer just this obscure corner of the internet where we you know there's shit coins and memes and you know, internet culture yeah. and anime uh, picks, yeah. like we're, this is real. We're going after yeah. the jugular. Imagine
0: if Frax, like not only has like the risk-free rate of DeFi, which is L ETH LSD yield it has a risk-free rate from the yield world. It has like the best of both worlds, which is pretty cool. So, uh, touching, um, actually, uh, let me just start, just start again. Three, two, one. Yeah. So something else I actually want to get into is, uh, Frax ETH. And, you know, I just meant, you know, what, you know, Frax, it'd be really cool. You know, actually, let me, let me start over again. Cause I said before, um, Fraxie, what Frax is going to have the DeFi based, like organic baseline. As- yeah, sorry. I'm spiraling. Okay. Three, two. Okay. Three, two, one. Yeah. So Justin, um, have you looked into Fraxie at all? Um, you know, it's the risk-free rate of DeFi at the moment really you know a lot of people are building their own version of this of lsds Um, fraxis recently came out with their version have you looked into it at all Uh, what are your initial thoughts on it yeah
2: my initial thoughts are like one it's it's great timing now's the time to do it right right now when uh, deposits go in they can't come out and so like this in my view is the time when like all of these different staking providers can build up their market share and so i think it's certainly a great move for frax fxs holders etc and i think like carving out frax's own little lane in staking is going to be crucial like i don't know if frax will ever be bit bigger than lido or coinbase eth but i mean this is going to be a huge market i think only like 14 million eth is staked there's 120 or so million eth outstanding if you look at comparable pos networks like cardano i think the stake rate's like 60 so like it's going to be a huge market um, but I'm still like personally just learning a bit, learning the differences between Frax ETH and some of the other models. And I, it hasn't yet clicked with me like the advantage of the Frax ETH and having the two token system versus like Lido and their wrapper. So I'm still trying to work that out. But I think it's, it's definitely a great product and it's effectively allowing Frax to lever up on staking yields. Frax can basically like gather all of this ETH by subsidizing yields, paying a little more with FXS rewards, curve bribes, get all this ETH locked and then sort of figure out the plan from there. So yeah. that's been my understanding, but I haven't you know dug too, too deep in it personally.
0: I Yeah, you're definitely on the right path, but I think it comes down to what makes Fraxie different is both simplicity and the optionality that it provides. It gives optionality on how you want to use your Fraxie. Like with Steph, you can only like, you know, have it like rebasing and stuff. And, you know, that rebasing is not very composable, kind of limits you. Um, Rocket Pool, it's as you know, it, basically the token occurs value over time. Sometimes there's issues with oracles there, um, but with Fraxeth with this two-token system, Fraxeth is I call it Chadweth. So like it's basically like a more gas optimized weth, and it basically in the same way that USDC represents like dollars in a bank or like treasury yields and this and that, Fraxeth represents ETH staked in validators run by Frax. That's it. Uh, but the only time you earn the rewards from those validators is if you stake in the S-Frax ETH vault, if you stake in the 4626 um, S-Frax ETH vault. And so, but not all Frax ETH is in that vault. So you naturally have a boosted yield there. There's actually, you know, if you want to, if you're a little bit more risk averse and like want to earn more yield, um, you can go stake into the curve pool and then the convex pool and, and like the stay convex frax wrapper bub, you know, you know what I mean? Um, And, you know, get rewards that way. And so those are the two main, actually, those those are the two main things right now. A third way was just released. You can actually um, lever up on your S-Frax ETH in FraxLend. So you can take a loan out of your interest bearing S-Frax ETH. ETH, You can start looping it, which is really cool. And so there's going to be so those are the main three w- ways right now. I expect more lending platforms to integrate S-Frax ETH. Um, It's like, I think it's the best constructed model right now for any liquid staking derivative. Granted, I have my biases, but like from doing my research, especially before our Frax ETH episode with Jack. And if anybody wants to learn more about how Frax ETH works, I highly recommend listening to that episode. But does that make sense, Justin? It it does. I'll definitely check that episode out. I think
2: the one thing that's not clicking yet is like when withdrawals are turned on, it might yeah. be more comparable to say FRAX ETH is comparable to WEF. But like right now you are taking on the risk of the validator by holding FRAX ETH and not getting rewarded for it unless you're like putting that in some farm or something like that. So I don't think it's comparable to like WEF now, but I think it, it could be in the future. Right. But you are definitely
0: like taking on a little more risk now. But what do you mean by a, a little bit more risk? Oh, because like you so, can't get the, yeah, you can't get the ETH back. Yeah, well, like, withdrawal. okay,
2: ultimately, like yeah. a few things, We're on like, it's a LS, liquid staking der- derivative. So the underlying ETH is not withdrawable right now, like, presumably mm-hmm. it will be in like four months when withdrawals are turned on and you have to get out of the staking queue. But right now you can't withdraw it and liquidity could dry up, right? Like, unlikely because FRAX is incentivizing it, but it's not fair to say it's. In my opinion, like exactly the same as WETH because WETH is like a very simple wrapper that just holds the ETH, spits it in, spits it out. Whereas Frax ETH, like today, you're taking on additional risk after withdrawals, mm. like and the security like guarantees are more there. I would say it's comparable, but like right now, you are taking on like some early adopter risk.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. I see what you're saying. But um, of which yeah, you are go-
1: compensated for, you're compensated for.
0: Yeah. Just if, like if you do something with to. the token, yeah.
1: yeah. And yeah. It, actually, it's, the market is surprisingly efficient. We have 32.99% in the S-Frax ETH vault. Then we have the other 66% in the curve pool. So we have this 0.01% of Frax ETH that is just chilling in the ether. And I have no idea what these guys <laughs> or gals are doing. But I don't know why are you not putting it to work. It's, just, it's yeah. so surprising. Yeah.
2: So I, yeah. I think it's I think it's a super smart model for Frax the community because it basically the way I think about it it allows you to double how much ETH you get locked up in your validator set right like if you're Lido you can only get X amount of ETH based on the demand for staked ETH but because like you're you're able to split out the yield from the validators and the yield on Curve and from FXS you can basically like double up and lever up and get like two X the amount of adoption if like depending on how much FXS you use to bribe or curb, et cetera. So I think it's a really smart move. Move, And I hope Frax is quite aggressive about like spending that capital to attract yeah. that locked liquidity before the merge, because I think the people, the companies, projects, et cetera, that win all, that take that market share before withdrawals are enabled, are going to keep a lot of it. So
0: Yeah. And I expect, uh, you know, after Shanghai, I don't think the staking rate is going to go down. I think it's going to go up and it's going to go up. Buy a lot because why wouldn't you stake your ETH? Why would you just have it sitting in your wallet We you can just throw it into Frax ETH or something else and earn yield on it? So I, I wouldn't be surprised if the staked ETH in the future is ninety percent. Honestly, like I think that you know could be definitely be a possibility. And if Frax like you mean you stake like Frax ETH, right? Stake or just FRAX, no, stake all 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 the ETH. If all ETH in existence, I think ninety percent. There's a chance that like ninety percent of it will be stakes because oh, why, yeah. Would, yeah, why wouldn't especially like more sophisticated investors like into the space like of course they're going to stake in like that's the risk-free rate of defi
2: yeah this reminds me i was on a bd call with lido like six months ago it was actually a really long time ago and they said our like internal mission is that no one in the world ho- holds raw eth like they're just holding staked ETH or wrap stake deep like their yeah, instead yeah because like why would you just if right. it's fully secure, why would you hold regular ETH, right? Like you're better off holding a staking der- derivative.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and FRAX are the masters of stables. So it makes sense for them to come out with FRAX ETH and be curious if they release any other stable coins in the future. There are a few people asking in our chat, in the FRAX chat, hey, like, will there be a FRA, you know FRAX BTC in the future? Um, I think if there's like ever enough demand for it, you know, that would be like something pretty cool, but mm-hmm. I'm not even sure how that would, yeah. yeah. I don't Frax-matic. even know how that would look. Fraxmatic, oh, that, that just sounds cool. Frax- oh yeah, Fraxmatic, right? <laughs> Frax, Frax, AVAX, <laughs> Um, I don't know. Um, there's a lot of possibilities in the future.
1: Yeah. 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 Uh, and I know we're about to run to the end of our interview here. And uh, Justin, first of all, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. to to kind of uh, share about your journey and also what you're building over there at Astaria. And at the end of these pods, we usually do a series of rapid fire questions. All right. So um, I'm going to start with the very first one is, when did you first touch the chain? What was your crypto virgin experience? And buying on sexes don't count.
2: (laughs) It was uh, 2019, I don't know if I bought a CryptoKitty, but I was getting onboarded to crypto and the first thing this person showed me was CryptoKitties through a MetaMask. And it was, I, it was, I, was, I was thinking to myself, this, this can't be the future of anything, this is absolutely useless. <laughs> <laughs> And now uh, you're it.
0: the CEO of an NFT lending platform. Oh Shane,
1: It all goes full circle, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Oh, this, this is not the future of anything. And by the way, I, I'm going to allow a platform for you to lend against your crypto kitties. <laughs> yeah, I've since changed my position, but that was my first impression. Awesome. Uh, and then, second question is: um, What is your favorite off-chain activity? What is your favorite touch grass activity?
2: Uh, I like, so I'm a pilot, so I don't touch the grass. I like to touch the sky, but, uh, Wait, yeah. You're pilot? So like, wow. yeah, when you're back in LA, Dave, we should go flying I fly to yes. Van Nuys airport here. So yes, I would love to go. Where's
0: like the farthest you ever flew?
2: Uh, well, I've flown like the grand Canyon's a great destination. The Bay area from here. I've flown around Cape Cod in Massachusetts. Um, Yeah. The planes have a lot of range, but like you, you don't have a bathroom, right? It's so like you don't want to be sitting in there, and it's, it's not the same as being in like a nice jet. These are propeller planes that are loud and clunky and uncomfortable, and that's part of the fun of it. But you know, you you don't want to be in this thing for more than three or four or five hours at a time.
0: Oh, that's so cool! Just take a quick trip up to the bay. Yeah, Just drive yourself. Is it yeah, cheaper I'll fly. to fly? Your, is it cheaper to fly yourself or?
2: No, it's, it, it's really, you're only doing it because it's fun. So like, um, I don't know, the costs are probably like $200 an hour when you're in the sky, depending on what you fly. If you're flying like a Cessna 182, or, which is pretty standard, maybe like $200 an hour. So like it is cheaper to fly like commercial or to drive, but uh, it's a lot more fun to fly yourself.
0: Yeah. <laughs> cool.
1: Dave, your question.
0: Yeah. Um, what is some advice you would give to your, Younger self, five years younger from you now. Um, I wish I would have worried less for sure. Um, it's
2: you know I think Steve Jobs like best quote is you can't really connect the dots going forward, only backwards. Like I never would have thought I would have been in crypto, and if you had told me I was working in crypto five years ago, I would have like probably hated myself for it. But I'm <laughs> super happy how how it all turned out. So um, you know everything. If I think if you're, if you're smart enough and you have like some good common sense, things work out pretty well.
1: And and last question for me is if you weren't working in crypto professionally, what would you be doing with your career?
2: Um, I think I would be still in the entertainment industry. So I I really had a lot of fun working in the strategy business development area and entertainment, probably at a larger studio. Um, so I think I'd be doing that and always sort of searching for a way to do my own thing and always wanted to be an entrepreneur.
0: So. Right, nice. Cool. Yeah, Justin, thanks for coming on, telling us about thank your Thank you journey. guys so much. Yeah.
2: yeah. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's a, it's a real honor.
0: Yeah. And we'll have you on again soon when, after starting launches and we can, you know, kind of do a review from there. Awesome. Thank yeah. you guys no, so much. Man.
1: Thank you. See, yep.
0: See you around. Thanks everyone for watching this edition of Flywheel Pod. We had on Justin Bram breaking down everything deep into DeFi and now going into NFT Fi with Astaria. You know, if you, you shoot for the moon, you go for the stars. And I think Justin has done that in his short time as a builder. And I'm sure, he'll, you know, he'll be in this industry for a long time doing a lot of cool shit. Um, any final thoughts on this one, Kent?
1: Yeah, I'm just honestly excited that he's going to get back to content producing, right? Like, you mm. know, we need more voices. Yeah. We need more voice of reason. Like, you know, no yeah. more of those like, YouTube thumbnail where the guy goes and, like, there's, like, 18,000% yeah. APY or some stupid shit. Like, no more know.
0: airdrop threads. No, <laughs> no please.
1: The, no the more threaders. Airdrop threats no
0: more... <laughs> <laughs> I banished our threaders to the shadow realm. Next no,
1: you, no, uh, you... I mean, that, that's, that's, that's a bit right. I think threaders are okay. Just no more guides on airdrop guides. Like yeah, here's no a more, guide no to the guys. guide of the airdrop. No, guide. no I, I
0: right, let me rephrase that. I banish all engagement farmers to the shadow realm. Threaders are good. We like our threaders. We don't like the engagement farmers, whether on Twitter or with their fucking YouTube thumbnails, with their jaw to the floor. <laughs> Get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> Ooh, <laughs> <But, laughs> spice play on flywheel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the flywheel. Yeah. Anyways, <laughs> but. If you like what we're doing here at Flywheel, we keep it honest, we keep it humble, we keep it about the builders. Don't forget to like, comment, subscribe, hit that bell button to keep up with us for more high-quality, good, wholesome content. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FlywheelPod. Join the discussion on our Telegram at FlywheelPod. You can follow me on Twitter at DeFiDave22.
1: You can follow me at 0 capital
0: underscore K. And we'll see you next week.